The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So my name is Tanya, Tanya Weiser. Nice to see some of you again that I've seen recently. Yep. Nice to see some I haven't. So I've been um, kind of thinking about the Asuta Majma Nikaya 128 a lot. And um, one of the things that I've really been struck by uh, as I've been kind of studying the sutta is how much the sutta is about generosity, ethical action, and meditation. And meditation in the broadest sense, from mindfulness practice meditation in daily life to concentration practice. And um, how supportive each of those things are for supporting a clear mind. The... It's said in the in the teachings that the true nature of the mind is radiance. And as our mind is radiant, our heart is free to express generosity, kindness, caring, ethical action. So this particular sutta and come back to the kind of um, well, it's named the sutta is called corruptions, and it's um, in the translation by Bikus Jato that I used. So I, I don't read Pali, so I'm reading the English and as it's interpreted. You know, and so the the um, the corruptions are really the things that cloud that luminescent mind, heart. And I'll talk about them more later. But I kind of want to go through the sutta a little bit and really look at because these the qualities of generosity and ethical action and meditation are demonstrated more than they're really spoken about. So the sutta starts with the Buddha in a monastery. And at that time there was a group of mendicants who were arguing, quarreling, and disputing continually, wounding each other with barbed words. And when the Buddha was in this monastery, a mendicant came up to the Buddha and bowed, stood to one side, and told him what was happening with these mendicants who were arguing, disputing. And he said, Please, Gert, please, sir, go to these mendicants out of compassion. And the Buddha consented in silence. So when I just look at this, um, I see 
generosity on the part of the Buddha, right? To consent to leave a monastery who is meditating. And, you know, it's very ethical to take our time to care for our minds, to take care of our body, hearts, and mind in meditation and practice. And then the um, Buddha goes to um, these, you know, mendicants who are quarreling, arguing, hurting each other with words. So all of those things are the opposite of generosity, ethical action, and meditation. There's no none of those qualities present. And so he, the Buddha, arrives and he says. Enough, mendicants, stop arguing, quarreling, and disputing. He said it three times, and each time the mendicant, I'm assuming the one that went to go get him, said, wait, sir, let the Buddha, the Lord of the Dhamma, remain passive, dwelling in blissful meditation in the present life. So three times, essentially, the Buddha tried to get these arguing mendicants to stop, to talk, to practice, and they didn't listen. So three times, the mendicant says to him, take care of yourself, Buddha. (laughs) They're not listening. So the Buddha robed up in the morning and went out for alms and came back got his lodging in order and took his bowl and robe and um, and then he recited a poem before he left, sort of right there. And he said, when many voices shout at once, no one thinks that they're a fool. So right away, when people are shouting at once, there's right no generosity. Everybody's trying to grab the space. There's no right speech. Right? They're all shouting, so there's not ethical action. And they're certainly not paying attention to their mindfulness. So he said, while the Sangha is being split, none thought another to be better. Dolts pretending to be astute, they talk their words right out of bounds. Again, out of ethical action. They blab at will, so no restraint, right? their mouths agape, and no one knows what leads them on. So they're just sort of the energies of the hindrances, right? These corruptions are what are driving their behaviors. They abuse me, they hit me, they beat me, they rob me, is what he's saying they say. And he says, for those who bear such a grudge, hatred never ends. For those who bear no grudge, no such grudge, hatred does have an end. For never is hatred settled by hate. It's only settled by love. This is an eternal truth. And to settle a conflict, we need generosity, right? We need ethical action. We need to speak with wisdom. We need to act and behave with wisdom. And to be mindful. 
The Buddha goes on to say, others don't understand that here we need to be restrained. So these these um, these hindrances, these things that obstruct the clear mind, they're energies. They they're they're it's part of nature. We all have them. They've had we've had you know they've been in our culture for eons, in the world's cultures. And if you know if we don't restrain them, they they just keep going and they grow. Their habits that becomes much more than a habit, our conditioning, our personalities. And he says, but those who understand this, this need to be restrained, being clever, they settle their conflicts. Right? Breakers of bones and takers of lives, thieves of cattle, horses, and wealth, those who plunder the nation, even they can come together. So why on earth can't you? And he says, if you find an alert companion, a wise and virtuous friend, then overcoming all adversities, wander with them, joyful and mindful. If you find no alert companion, no wise and virtuous friend, then like a king who flees his conquered realm, wander alone like a tusker in the wilds. A tusker is a male elephant with the tusks, right? Large, confident. He said it's better to wander alone. There's no fellowship with fools. Wander alone and do no wrong at ease like a tusker in the wild. So the Buddha says this, and then he moves on. And he goes to visit um, a mendicant in another village. And the mendicant was Bagu, and the Bagu saw the Buddha coming off in a distance. So very much unlike the other group, when Bhagu saw the Buddha coming, he spread out a seat, placed water for washing his feet. And when the Buddha came, the Buddha sat on the seat and washed his feet, and Bhagu bowed to the Buddha and sat down to one side. So we see the complete opposite expression when someone's meeting the Buddha here. There's generosity, ethical action, and mindfulness. And the Buddha says to him, I hope you're keeping well, mendicant. I hope you're all right. And I hope you're having no trouble getting alms food. And Bhagu says, I'm keeping well, sir. I'm all right. And I'm having no trouble getting alms food. And then as a you know, response, the Buddha educated, encouraged, fired up, and inspired Bhagu with a Dharma talk, which is another you know, set of generosity, right? Ethical action and mindfulness or meditation. So there's no mention of the that in the sutta. There's no mention of the generosity the kindness that they're showing, the care and regard. It's just telling you simply describing this, right? So if you're, if you're 
You know, there's this way, I think, in which the Buddha taught so much by what he showed us. We often will read a sutta, and if you just read the sutta based on the content, it's the content is much more focused on, you know, ill will and hatred and, you know, sort of um, conflict and... And then the Buddha, again, sort of, to me, it's like, okay, he's at a monastery, he's practicing, he's invited, he's asked to come and help. And so he just gets up and goes, <laughs> you know, just responds. And then he goes to the Kambusos, Kambusos, and they're arguing, and he's no use, so he leaves there and goes and helps Bagu. And, and then he gets up and goes again. And he goes this time to see three venerables, who were staying in the eastern bamboo park. And as he approached the park, the park keeper saw the Buddha coming along and said to the Buddha, he, de- he clearly doesn't know who the Buddha is, right? And he says, don't come into this park, ascetic. There are three gentlemen who love themselves staying here. What a way to describe the mendicant staying in that park. Three gentlemen who love themselves staying here. Do not disturb them. And Anruda, who's one of the mendicants there, sees the Buddha and sees the park keeper and so, you know, says, no, no, it's okay, you know, and calls to his other companions and says, come forth, venerables, come forth, our teacher, the blessed one has arrived. So, we see in this progress, progression now, in the second progression, Bagu was, you know, stood and prepared for the Buddha. And, but there was not, not this, come forth, come forth, our teacher, the blessed one has arrived. So we're seeing another kind of layer of welcoming, another layer of generosity and, you know, kind speech in, in this. And then the three venerables came out to greet the Buddha. And all three of them engaged in this greeting. So one received his bowl and his robe. One spread out a seat. And one set water out for washing his feet. And the Buddha sat on the seat, spread out, and washed his feet. And and then the venerables bowed and sat down to one side. And the Buddha starts the conversation in the same way. He says, I hope you're keeping well. I hope you're all right. I hope you're having no trouble getting alms food. And Anruda says, we're keeping well, sir. We're all right. And we're having no trouble getting alms food. So just taking a moment with this keeping well, you know, that's, um, you know, it's important for us to keep well, right? It's really meaningful to say, I hope you're keeping well. And getting alms food is incredibly important because that's the, you know, what we need to survive and a body, right? We need food. And um, and then the Buddha, you know, goes on and he says, because he's found out, yes, you're getting your nourishment, you're keeping well, and and he goes on to say, I hope you're living in harmony. 
appreciating each other without quarreling, blending like milk and water and regarding each other with kindly eyes. Wow, that's quite a description, right? Like quite, quite a lot for the Buddha to be saying, living in harmony, appreciating each other without quarreling, blending like milk and water and regarding each other with kindly eyes. You can see if they're behaving this way, why the park keeper would say there are three people who are loving themselves, right? And Anruta says, indeed, sir, we're living in harmony, as you say. And then the Buddha asks something incredibly important. But how do you live this way? So, I think this is incredibly important to ask this question. I think it's a question we don't ask enough of ourselves. Sayadaw Utejaniya says, if you don't question and discover the factors that contribute to a positive state of mind, the mind takes those states, good states for granted. So when things are good and going well, ask yourself questions like, what is happening now? Why are things going well? What attitude is present? In this way, you start to recognize, to really see what we're doing to support the arising of well-being, both in our own minds and in our interactions with others. How do you live this way? Not just, you know, I hope you're, you know, you're in harmony, but how, do you know how you're doing this? It's just so important for our practice. Anruta answers, and he has an answer. He can say, and what he says is, in this case, sir, I think, so he's saying, I think to myself, I'm fortunate, so very fortunate. So he's expressing gratitude, right, appreciation. And that's a very powerful and supportive factor for helping us value what we're doing. Really important for us to kind of take the time to appreciate what we're doing that's supporting our well-being. And he thinks he's fortunate to live together with spiritual companions such as these. I feel fortunate to have this sangha here, this place to come to, to have people here to practice with. And he says, I consistently treat these venerables with kindness by way of body, speech, and mind, in both public and private. So in public and private, sort of like internally and externally. So it's not just an external expression that he's doing. He's actually relating to them in those same ways inside of himself. You know, Sometimes we act kindly on the outside, but we don't feel so kindly on the inside. And he thinks to himself, you know, well, I'm assuming like he has his own ideas come up, right? His own wishes, his own things. And so he says, well, why don't I set aside my own ideas and just go along with these venerables' ideas? And that's what I do. Though we're different in body, sir, we're one in mind, it seems to me. 
And then the venerables, his other companions, um, they said likewise, and they added, that is how we live in harmony, appreciating each other without quarreling, blending like milk and water, and regarding each other with kindly eyes. So one of the things that um, the Buddha had said earlier was living in harmony, right? So, you know, this is when we're interacting in a way that has a, a pleasing effect. If it's music, it's melodious. But, you know, when you see people interacting together, working together, you've been on a retreat? Have any of you been on a retreat? Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful place to see, especially at the Insight Retreat Center. You know, people are all in silence. And then there's like, in particular, I love the morning sangha service at Insight Retreat Center. After the first meditation, everybody spends 20 minutes cleaning. And they're just sort of dancing and weaving and working around each other and everybody has their jobs and doing them with such care and it's very melodious. It's really beautiful. The other thing that I want to emphasize here is the Buddha said mutual. Are you being, is this mutual? And I think this is really important because it's like the Sangha service, everyone is engaged, right? Everyone is engaged. It's shared reciprocated so you know they say yes we're blending well we're regarding each other well and the Buddha says good good you know sadhu sadhu I hope you're living diligently keen and resolute so now you know are you also kind of living in a way that shows diligence keenness and resolution so you know, this diligence is showing care and consciousness in one's work or duties, right? Keen, sort of like having some ardency, some energy, you know, and resolute, sort of admirably and purposefully, right? determined, unwavering. So are you living this way? And he said, and Ruta says, yes, indeed, sir, we live diligently. And again, this good question is, but how? How do you live this way? And Anruta says, in this case, sir, whoever returns from alms round prepares the seats and puts out the drinking water and the rubbish bin. If there's anything left over, whoever returns last eats if they like. Otherwise, they throw it out where there is, and I love this, little that grows, so they're paying attention to where they're disposing of the food, not just to destroy plants that are growing or animals. Or they drop it into water that has no living creatures. Again, attending to the life that's there. And then they put away their seats, drinking water, and rubbish bin, and sweep the refractory. And if someone sees that a pot of water for washing, drinking, or their toilet is empty, so if you notice this, they set it up. So they're taking care of each other. If someone sees that the, um, oh, let's see, and if he can't do it, he summons another with a wave of the hand. And they set it up by lifting it with their hands together. But they don't break into speech for that reason. 
Every five days we sit together for the whole night and discuss the teachings. That's when they speak. And they talk about the Dharma. And that is how they live diligently, keen and resolute. And the Buddha says, good, good, good. Yeah. And then he says, so he's going to move into a whole nother realm with these mendicants that he didn't ever have a chance to even begin with the first and wasn't kind of discussed or shared with the second. So now he asks, but as you live diligently like this, have you achieved any superhuman distinction and knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones, a meditation at ease. So this is referencing deep concentration and insight. In general, it's said that when people don't live in harmony with each other, they obstruct their access to the Dhamma. When we live in harmony, access to the Dhamma appears. This is probably why the Buddha is going further with these mendicants and his teaching. They're accessible and they're living in harmony. So their access to the Dhamma should be available. It should, it should appear. Anruta says, Well, sir, and this is this is actually a really great example of how to talk about your practice. Well, sir, while meditating, meditating, and he describes how diligent, keen, and alert, and resolute, we perceive both light and vision of forms. But before long, the light and vision of forms vanish, and we haven't worked out the reason for that. So, you know, when we go and we're sort of sharing our practice, it's really helpful to sort of name how we're practicing, what arises, what we're seeing, and that's when they're referencing this light and and the forms. So what do we notice? And then what happens from there? And so essentially they're describing that they begin to get concentrated, and then the concentration dissipates. And then he says, and we haven't figured out why. They don't, they don't yet know why that's happening. So the Buddha responds again with tremendous generosity. And, um, and he decides to tell them about his own, what he learned and his own practice. And he actually, he shares about it from a first-person perspective and says, this is what happened for me when that was going on. And we'll go through this, but this is where the Buddha starts to talk about these hindrances and how they arise in meditation practice. And so he said, before my awakening, when I was still unawakened, but intent on awakening... I too perceived both light and vision of forms. But before long, my light and vision of forms vanished. And so it occurred to me, and this is so important, what is the cause? 
What is the reason why my light and vision of forms vanish? And Aruda was saying he hadn't figured that out. But remember, this is a worthy question. When you are meditating and things come up and you notice them, it's very worthwhile to reflect on what was going on, what changed, what qualities were present. And so the first thing that the Buddha shares that occurred to him was that doubt arose in me. And because of that, my immersion fell away. Immersion is the concentration. When immersion falls away, the light and vision of forms vanish. And then he says, I'll make sure that doubt will not arise in me again. So doubt, I'm, I'm, I love in this sutta that doubt is the first hindrance to be named. It is so common for us to have doubt. So common for us to question how we should practice, right? What is my practice good enough? Am I good enough, right? What teacher should I listen to? You know, there's so much that we can doubt. And when we feel that doubt, we, we lack conviction, right? We become indecisive or hesitant, dubious, suspicious, confused, And those things really affect our ability to, you know, kind of be ardent, right? To be committed, to be, you know, focused and energetic and committed to our practice. And there are many causes. So the Buddha actually doesn't explain what doubt is in the sutta. I'm explaining it to you a little bit. And he doesn't say to them, this is what you'll feel when you notice doubt. And, you know, he doesn't tell them what the cause of doubt is, which in a way is also incredibly beautiful and generous because all of us have our own experience of what doubt is. And we all need to discover it for ourselves and know how it manifests in our practice. And so he's saying, look for doubt, but you've got to figure it out. Because <laughs> we really all do. We learn from each other, you know, we, we can read and, but it's starting, it's that, it's when we recognize it as it's arising in our own mental space, in our own hearts, that's when we have the moments that, wow, those are precious moments. So these hindrances that arise are actually also the guides toward freedom. If we can recognize them and see them and meet them skillfully, they're treasures. They are part of practice. They obscure the mind, but they also, when we work with them, dissolve, at least temporarily. One, one you know, thing to think about... Um, in our modern society, often a main source of doubt is giving inappropriate attention to thinking, to speculating and analyzing, to doing a lot of thinking. Most of us have kind of a value of cleverness and thinking and wielding these answers. And, you know, but the Buddha's teaching says thinking is the cause of many, many problems. So I'll just, you know, I'm just going to point to one little thing. There's so many kinds of doubt. So I'm just going to point to one little thing. And 
you know. The other thing is that, um, yeah, well, let's see. So then the, I'll just go on. So then the Buddha says, while meditating, and so he brings back up, diligent, keen, and resolute. This is how he was meditating. I perceived both light and vision of forms, but before long my light and vision of forms vanished. It occurred to me, what is the cause? What's the reason why my light and vision and form vanished? So he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not trying to make himself have a different experience. He's simply recognizing something, you know, was getting clear. The mind was getting concentrated. And then it vanished. Okay, what happened? And we have to be pretty close to that event to be able to say what happened often, right? So it's really, when we have an event in our meditation and we get caught in a hindrance, right? Wow, just like gold is right there. <laughs> if we can really say, oh, I want to notice, not, damn, I'm angry again. <laughs> but rather, oh, oh, this is nature, this is arising. Let me open up to this. Can I reflect what happened here? What generated the appearance of this doubt? Or what generated the appearance? And in this time, the Buddha says, it occurred to me loss of focus arose in me. And it was because of that that my immersion fell away. And so loss of focus is could be part of sloth and torpor, which is another one of the hindrances. Sort of the torpor is um, the mind sags. (laughs) The mind is diffuse and not focused. Kind of a little bit out of it. And so the the lack of focus, right, is going to affect staying present. And the, for me, when I think about the, a loss of focus, what I associate a lot of causes of that are actually a lack of interest. Are we, are we interested in what's happening? Like really seeing what's going on. Are, are we inspired? Are we inspired by our practice, by our teacher, by the sangha, by the people around us? And do we have faith? Do we have faith in this practice, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha? And those things support focus, right? And energy and interest. So next the Buddha goes on and he says, while meditating, dullness and drowsiness arose in me. And every time he says, I'm going to make sure that neither doubt nor loss of focus nor dullness and drowsiness and all the other things he's listed before, I'm going to make sure they will not, you know, arise in me again. So dullness and drowsiness might be the part of sloth and torpor, which is the sloth part, which is in the body, usually energetically. So it's kind of a lack of energy. And it can be due to a variety of causes. 
we need to kind of figure out what that is for ourselves. Sometimes it's very simple. We ate too much for dinner. We didn't get enough sleep. We didn't exercise. Like not exercising can make us feel slothful. We watch too much TV, right? But again, sort of if we find ourselves really drowsy in our meditation, pay attention. Right? Pay attention to, like, okay, what? why might I be feeling drowsy here? The Buddha goes on to name a few other things. Um... But I kind of want to pause here because we're getting near the end and just see if anyone has any thoughts, reflections, questions. I can go in any direction um, that you all are interested in, if there is an interest. Great. Thanks, Tanya. Uh, I'm interested in this phrase, light and vision of forms, Mm -hmm. and I wonder if you could say a bit about your interpretation of what that means. Yeah. um, I mean, I think that there's one one interpretation of that could be that it's like the, the nimitta or the beginning of going into a jhana, a concentrated state. The light, right? So that's one possibility. Um, and it's also, you know, fairly common for people, again, just as they start to concentration, start to get concentrated, their mind can be quite bright. Um, it also could just mean potentially that there's something about the clarity of how one is seeing. You know, that they get the, the dark and light sort of kind of implies there's something quite clear that's being seen. You're really aware of what's happening. So those are uh, possible. What do you think of that? Yeah, that, that sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the question. I think, you know, I really want to emphasize how Im- important it is to connect our behavior in the world and how we live with what happens in meditation. And that when, when we're in the world and we're enacting, you know, the hindrances of doubt, right? Classically, they're listed desire, sensual desires, a wanting pleasantness, aversion or ill will, restlessness and worry, which is... Well, well, sloth and torpor and doubt. And so you can think about desire and aversion as both energies moving in opposite directions. Desire is the wanting of something. The energy is a pulling. And aversion is wanting to get rid of something. But they're both focused on a wanting, more or not. Sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry are kind of the opposite, right? Sloth and torpor is a lack of energy, a lack of, you know, a clarity in the mind. And, and um, restlessness and worry is too much energy in the body, a mind that's too worried, too frenetic. And then doubt, which we've talked about, right? 
So these, you can, if you just think about them as energies, um, you can see how they're, you know, like they, the Buddha will say that um, both, both desire and ill will are there from the birth, right? They're, they're, there's just, they're, they're like life energies. We need to go for food and we need to get away from being hurt in the simplest form. And that, so they're very innately, you know, there. And um, the others kind of come along later, right, as we become more aware of ourselves and, you know, sort of various other things. But if we allow these energies to continue to manifest in our lives without, without discipline, they become habits and then they become you know characteristics personality structures so next month diana clark and i are going to teach a hindrances class using the wizard of oz as a reference it's such a great i'm so it's going to be really fun and such a great sort of example of personalities. They kind of created personalities out of the different hindrances with the characters in that show. And, you know, it, you might ask yourself of these hindrances, which one, what, do I have this personality type? <laughs> Often you'll hear in Buddhism, there's three personality types, agreed, uh, aversion, and deluded. But I actually, I like this idea of like the five personality types of the hindrances, all five of them, because that certainly seems relevant um, to me. And if you come uh, watch The Wizard of Oz with us, we'll, we'll show little clips. So if you're interested, I encourage you to watch the movie before you come. But um, when is that? Starting on the first Thursday in March... Um, it's uh, 6.30 is the start time. We'll end at 8. And so it'll be for five Thursdays in March. Yeah. And uh, so come ready to have fun. Yeah. So it's really, it's really, really, um, I guess one final thing I'll say is... Um, Oh, I like this. I'll, I'll share this. It's not what I was going to say, but I looked up data corruption in Wikipedia as a reference because they use this word corruptions, and I liked it so much better than many. And so in Wikipedia, it says data corruption refers to errors in computer data that occur, right, right, occur during writing, reading, storage, transmission, or processing, right? And it, they introduce unintended changes to the original data. And that's a way to think about the hindrances. They come in at some point and they make unintended changes to what we're doing, feeling, saying. And then it goes on, in general, when data corruption occurs, a file containing that data will produce unexpected results. Yes, well, (laughs) that certainly can happen when we get, you know, driven by the energies of the hindrances. And, um, you know, the results can be very minor to very major, a system crash. And then, I love this too, there are two types of data corruption associated with computer systems. 
undetected and detected. That's so great. That's so simple. The hindrances, we either see them or they don't. And what happens if we don't see them? Right? They just run rampant. And so in the computer world, undetected data corruption, also known as um, uh, silent data corruption, results in the most dangerous errors. Right? Um, detected data corruption may be permanent with the loss of data or may be temporary when some part of the system is able to detect and correct the error. So may our systems detect data errors. (laughs) Thank you for your kind attention.